In the year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his possession, the land that he had owned. And if you sell anything to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another. And he gives definition to what he means by oppression. According to the number of years after Jubilee, you shall buy from your neighbor. And according to the number of years of crops, he shall sell it to you. According to the multitude of years, you shall increase its price. And according to the fewer number of years, you shall diminish its price. For he sh- he sells to you according to the number of years of the crops. Therefore, you shall not oppress one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. So the land, uh, we'll call it for discussion, the sale of the land, but really it's a lease that we're talking about. If someone comes to a family and says, I, I want those fields right there, if, if they're, you know, 10 years past uh, the last year of Jubilee, then that means that there's only 39 more years until the next Jubilee. So they'll calculate the price of the lease based upon what those fields are going to produce in crops over the next 39 years. And that's given the idea that the people who are going to lease it are also going to make a profit in the lease. You don't get to charge 100%. It is that whatever lease comes to you accordingly, uh, that it's going to be based upon what the land is capable of yielding in those 39 years. So that's what he's talking about when he says, you know, the number of years from or since the year of Jubilee and the number of years until. So everything has to be calculated according to the fruitfulness of the land and and what it's capable of yielding to the person who's going to hold it during those times. The redemption that he talks about gets a little more detailed as we move through this, but uh, the Sabbaths of rest every seventh year have to be calculated in, and then the Sabbath rest that occurs on the year of Jubilee for the land uh, to go without being planted, go without having crops grown in it. So in that calculation, uh, the, the, the freedom of the people to trust the Lord is very significant in everything that the Lord is saying. They, they have to have a strength of faith to trust that God is going to sustain them through those years where they are not planting crops. They don't end up trusting the Lord. I mean, let's just let the cat out of the bag right in the beginning and start that whole discussion. They do not ever trust the Lord with the land, with the Sabbath rests, with the year of Jubilee the way that they should. They go through the process of leasing and returning land and all of those things, but they don't just abandon their own resources, and trust God for what he's promised to them. 490 years pass. Now, the, the captivity that takes place uh, when, when we come to the end of it and they have not worshipped the Lord and God sends them away to be slaves, captive to the nation of, of first Assyria, but ultimately Babylon. Okay, When God does that, it, it has little to do with the years of Jubilee and the the years of Sabbath and rest that the land was supposed to take, right? Those are symptomatic. The fact that they don't trust the Lord to take the Sabbath's year's rest, the fact that they don't leave the ground fallow on the years that they're supposed to, that's a symptom of what's going on in their heart. All through the process, you can see they're falling into idolatry. They're not honoring the Lord with their giving. They're not bringing the tithe into the storehouse. They're building their own houses and their own palaces, but they're not building the temple. They're not building the worship of the Lord. They're falling away from God and continuously falling into sin throughout the whole process. Part of that is they're not honoring any of these years of Sabbath or Jubilee as the Lord has required them to. 
So when it comes to them being captured by their surrounding nations and taken away into captivity, uh, the Lord says, we're going to hold you in captivity until all that you owe me in Sabbath rest is returned to me. You can see that statement in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, beginning at verse 20, where it says, And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land has enjoyed her Sabbaths, as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. 490 years passed. They had not honored the Lord, not trusted the Lord. So when it came time for them to be thrust into captivity, the Lord said, we've got an account here that needs to be settled. This land has to lie fallow for 70 years. Look, if, if we don't take the practical application that's here for ourselves, I'm not preaching some form of legalism, okay? But if we aren't personally as New Testament Christians trusting the Lord with our lives, if we're playing around with the world, flirting with sin, constantly engaging in things that we should not, you know, when the Lord tells us in the New Testament that he will not be mocked, that whatever we sow, we're going to reap, right? This, this, it was very much that farming terminology the Lord was talking about, you know, sowing and reaping. What you sow, you're going to reap. Here is a land, here is a people that has sowed continuously, right? Without taking the rest, without taking the Sabbath. And the Lord finally says, enough. Now we're going to take our rest. You guys have sowed continuously. Now it's time for no reaping. For the next 70 years, no reaping. You're going to have to be the slaves of other nations. And, you know, what perfect timing as we look around our nation right now. Okay, you've heard me talk about defending the faith, standing up for our rights, right? Worshiping the Lord regardless of who says we can or who says we cannot. I'm all for that mentality, but understand that what's happening to our nation right now is the judgment of God. It is the judgment of God, just like this, and it should scare the stuffing out of you. You should walk out of here today with a sobriety for what's outside these doors and what's going on in our nation, the insanity of our this isn't just an oh well we had this you know in the 60s there was the great uprising in the civil rights movement there was rioting and burning then and no 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 we're we're getting worse and worse with every passing year the circumstances are getting more and more distraught more and more insane they're literally i mean how nuts is it to think we're literally considering abolishing police forces in the United States that's absolutely insane. So anarchy. Anarchy is a good idea. Okay. Wow. We've come to the place where people in our nation are literally considering lawlessness. Oh, I think I heard that somewhere. Right? That in the end times, lawlessness would abound. That's where we're at. I mean, it's time to wait. If, you're, if you've not been a serious student of the scripture, it's time to let a message like this coming off this pulpit to shock you to where you would go home and search the scriptures and say, where am I in time? What is going on? You know, all preachers have always been saying that stuff, oh, just hellfire and brimstone. Really? This, this, this world has always been like this? No, it has not. This nation has, the world has spun out of control. It's come completely off the rails, and it's going to get a lot worse. So consider what's said here in uh, Leviticus chapter 25 as we continue at verse 18. So you shall observe my statutes and keep my judgments and perform them, and you will dwell in the land safe uh, in safety if you'll observe these things. Then you'll have 
safety. Then the land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell there in safety. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year, since we shall not sow nor gather in our produce? And that is uh, the Lord giving voice to their distrust and mockery. Hey, what are we going to eat if we don't plant? You're telling us that every seventh year we're not supposed to plant crops? What are we going to do? How are we going to take care of ourselves? Right? When you get your paycheck, if you are a person who understands that the Lord has said, if you'll give of the first fruits of your income one-tenth, I will bless you so that you will not be able to contain what I pour out upon you. And you go, great, that's a wonderful thing. I'll have so much that I won't be able to contain it. And then you get the paycheck and you're looking at, well, I just got the cancellation notice and my car just broke down. And how in the world am I going to take one tenth out of this check and give it to the Lord? That's exactly what's being said by this nation right here. It comes back to, do you really trust the Lord? The Lord is going to allow you to be tested, right? Because this isn't a thing. Our faith is not a thing of ease, right? The world talks about it like, oh, you know, you just, you know, trust the Lord blindly. You have blind faith. No, the Lord is literally going to allow you to have circumstances that are very difficult to test you. He already knows your substance. God's not surprised when you succeed or when you fail. He already knows your whole frame, your whole makeup. He already knows whether we're going to trust him and follow after him. We are the ones that need to be tested to prove to ourselves whether I'm going to walk in trust and faith in this circumstance because there's going to be another occasion where I'm going to be tested in a bigger way where I'm going to have to trust him in that occasion. You know, we started this church. uh, That wall right there was the far side of this whole uh, fellowship. Uh, Right here, there was a wall across, and there was a nursing mother's room, and then two Sunday school classes uh, down here on this end. And we did a Sunday school in the kitchen. We came through this back door, and a little group of people sat up here in metal chairs, you know, about two of them collapsed each week because they were all old and worn out and rickety, and uh, began discipling people. One of the men that I was discipling was really struggling with his walk in the Lord, and I was right beside him every day much as I could be in his family, in his marriage, and in his circumstances. And he was starting to grow. Big changes were beginning to happen. And we were about to start a Sunday morning service here. And then we had a little stage area set up where those doors are. We had a curtain hung across there. And I was standing right there. And I looked down through the hall. And he was standing out in the back with a Mormon on either side of him. And, and you know what a Mormon looks like because they wear the black pants and the white shirt and they have the little black badge on their pocket. And I came about that high right off the floor. Because here's a guy that I've been investing in constantly who's now flanked by two Mormons. And I know what they're all about. I had a similar thing happen to me when I first came to the Lord and it was Jehovah's Witnesses that derailed my whole walk with the Lord for almost two solid years. I went right down the hall and got right in their face and said, what are you guys doing here? And I, and trust me, I wasn't even that pleasant when I said it to them. And they start this whole line of junk about, we have just heard you're one of the most magnificent preachers in the area, and we, we just had to come and check out what it was, and I said, you are lying your butts off. They were horrified. No, what, what do you mean? And I said, you're here to fulfill exactly what Joseph Smith said to do, which was go into the churches and steal all you can from those who are weak. 
And you're here to take my friend out the door. And you should have seen the group of people around me that blew up. Not so much the Mormons, the weak young Christians all around me that were like, what are you doing? And I said, I'm throwing Mormons out right now. That's what I'm doing. And before it was done, I'm saying to Mark Hughes, go get the phone and call the police because these guys are refusing to leave. And in the end, we tossed them right out the door. Created a big ruckus in that service. Another gentleman left who needed to go. It set a precedent. It made a statement to the people of this church that we as leadership... We're not going to tolerate false teachers in our midst, people coming in and disrupting. You know, the, the people, listen, people left. You know, you got a little tiny fellowship of people, and from them, a group of people leave. They are to this day, 20 years later, the biggest troublemakers in Christianity that I've run into. The ones that left needed to go. You set the precedent with your behavior. You're going to have experiences where you're tested. Am I going to trust the Lord in this situation? I can tell you as a pastor, it's not easy to stand your ground and watch people walk out the door resultingly. But when you can recognize, oh, I just created health, right? I just created you know, goodness in the rest of the congregation. I just freed them from what was going to corrupt them. Then you can appreciate what you're doing. When you can take steps and trust the Lord, and then when the next occasion comes, you can say no. I remember the time where it was difficult, and I took my little tithe and I gave it to the Lord. And I trusted him and he blessed me and took care of me and saw me through that week, saw me through that month. When the next occasion comes, then you can trust the Lord in bigger things. And this is what the Lord says. If you'll trust him in the small things, he'll grant you bigger things. This nation never trusted him. And as a result, they end up in captivity. And they end up in slavery for 70 years. Right? You've seen the depictions of World War II right? as they're ripping families apart and they're sending mothers off and children off another direction and husbands off. So they're never going to see one another again because of their rebellion, because of their lack of trust in God. This nation, Israel, is going to experience that. God is laying out for them the blessing. Saying, if you'll trust me, you'll experience blessing like you, you can't even imagine. We know the other side of it. Now here's the beautiful thing about all of this. You can be the remnant. While the rest of our nation flushes itself down the toilet. You can be the individuals who say, I'm going to trust the Lord with my life. Right? Keep in mind, it does not mean you are going to be exempt from the punishment because we collectively as a nation are going to experience that. Right? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they were all following the Lord with their whole lives, but they end up in captivity, don't they? With the rest of them. And the Lord says, you, you don't get to be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and say, you know what? <clears throat> Throw us in the furnace. That's, that's not your first test, is it? you you got to know from your own life's experience, there were many occasions before that where they learned, we can trust God. You, you know there were many occasions before they came to that fiery furnace where they had already taken the steps of trusting the Lord. So when the day came for them to lay their lives down in payment, they were prepared for it. Their hearts had been readied. As much as I can encourage you, trust the Lord in these days, in these small things, there are 
bigger days coming. So you shall observe my statutes, keep my judgments, and perform them, and you will dwell in the land in safety. Then the land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell there in safety. We're past that as a nation. We're, we're on the losing end. We're on the downward slope. And if you say, what shall we have in the seventh year? Since we shall not sow nor gather in our produce, then I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year. And it will bring forth produce enough for three years. And you shall sow in the eighth year. In the eight, and eat old produce until the ninth year. Until it until its produce comes in. You shall eat of the old harvest. Philippians chapter 4 verse 19 says, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And I could give you countless examples in my own life, my own family, my own circumstances, where we have had to trust the Lord and just take the steps, and then you turn around, and the Lord is right there providing for you. Right there, making sure that you are taken care of. You know, uh, my uh, wife's uh, vehicle, uh, she had a little Mazda uh, we were running. Great little car. Loved that thing. Wish we didn't have to park it, but rusted out. Not going to pass inspection again. And so, do you put your money into that? No, you don't. And so, we're thinking like, oh, well, we'll buy the next sort of piece of junk and get by for the next couple of years. And good friend of ours, which some of you know and some of you even support, Josh Lawrence, had come home from Kenya, Africa, and uh, their missionaries there lived there permanently, and uh, they had learned in the years they come home for furlough for three months to visit their family and raise uh, support, uh, that it's actually cheaper for them to buy an inexpensive car than it is to rent while they're home and then to turn around and sell that before they leave. So right as my cars, my wife's cars being parked permanently, uh, you know, we find out that Josh and Kelsey Lawrence are headed back to Kenya, Africa, and they got this little uh, Ford Escape that uh, is right in the right price range and exactly what we can afford to take on as a family so you know it works we're even able to say you know to them you hang on till it till you're done and when you get ready to head back to the airport we'll take that off your hands you know, the lord's timing you know the perfect work of everything and uh you know we've got the uh vehicle sitting out here and i finally get to the point where i'm like you know i need to get that thing off from this parking lot so aggressively try to sell, and uh, a local guy wants uh, to buy it. He, he's just going to register it to run back and forth from his house down uh, to the lobster dock, so he, he can even register it as like a farm vehicle. You know what I'm saying? No rust even matters because he's just going like five miles, just register it in his town. Now, if you're not aware, you can do that. You can do that. So uh, he comes over to buy it from me, and uh, his brother is close friends with a young woman that used to attend this church and this school. And he's heard a lot about this church. So he has to sit in my office while we talk about the Lord for like 25 minutes while we do this sale. Yeah. The perfect timing of the Lord to bless him with a little car that's going to help him in his business endeavors tremendously and somebody that's not going to just show up here walk through the door and say teach me about jesus gets to sit in my office and get taught about jesus for you know better part of an hour the lord's orchestration in all things the way that he times things out if we'll trust him he'll utilize every single experience to produce a fruitfulness to himself we want to be part of that we want to experience that fruitfulness. We want to experience how it is that the Lord works in our hearts, works in our, instead, like this nation, rejecting God, not following him, you know, turning away 
what it is that he is giving these people. It's a terrible thing that they have to experience, that they have to go through in all of their rejection of God and their rejection of his blessing in their lives. So here in verse 23, it says, The land shall be uh, not be sold permanently, for here it is, the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me, right? They're presently in the wilderness. This is all God telling them about what they're going to receive. Right? Do you feel that way sometimes? As you look around at all the challenges and the difficulties and you long for heaven and you long for the problems to go away and you long for your new body and you long for the fulfillment of the Lord, right? The promises that the Lord is setting out for the nation of Israel, they've all come to pass, and they are continuing to come to pass. As much as we know that about them, we can know that about ourselves and what the Lord is doing in our lives. You're sojourners with me, and in all the land of your possession, you shall grant redemption of the land. So again, that lease that I talked about before. If one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possession, and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. So if someone puts land up there, their poor situation has happened, they need money, and they sell off half of uh, their land. If the time comes where a relative comes and says, hey, we need to get that back into the family, we need to redeem that back, then this is the Lord telling them how they're going to do it. Then let him count the years since its sale and restore the remainder to the man to whom it was sold, that he may return to his possession. But if he is not able to have it restored to himself, then what was sold shall remain in the hand of him who bought it until the year of Jubilee. And in the Jubilee it shall be released and he shall return to his possession. So if he can pay it off early, let him do that. If he can't, then at the appointed time, let it be released and come back to the man. You know, go through these natural practices. The Lord wanted to make sure that the land wasn't being lost to each of these families. 29, if a man sells a house in a walled city, we're going to see different requirements here then he may redeem it within a whole year after it is sold within a full year he may redeem it but if it is not redeemed within the space of a full year then the house in the walled city shall belong permanently to him who bought it throughout his generations it shall be released in the jubilee however the house of villages which have no walls around them shall be counted as the field of the country. They may be redeemed, and they shall be released in Jubilee. Nevertheless, the cities of the Levites and the houses in the cities of their possession, the Levites may redeem at any time. So a person who owned, you know, from whatever tribe, let's say Benjamin, because they're not of the tribe of Levi, which would have been the priests, so you're of the tribe of Benjamin and you have a country home where there's property and you know seasonally you live there and you plant your crops and you harvest, but you also own one in the town. That, that house can be sold permanently to somebody else. Whereas with the Levites, it has to be redeemed back to the Levite because they don't have any land that they grow crops on that belongs to them personally. As a tribe, they have a collective portion of land that is every tribe was supposed to assign. This, this area of land belongs to the Levites. And the Levites could grow crops on it and harvest and sustain themselves that way from the land. But they never owned land the way the individuals did from other tribes. So the houses they owned inside cities were the only things that they owned permanently to themselves inside, you know, walled cities. So the Lord is saying 
The homes that belong to a Levite have to be redeemed back to the Levites and their families the same way that property ownership would get returned to the people from the other tribes that own them. It shall be released in Jubilee. Nevertheless, the cities of the Levites and the houses of the cities of their possessions, the Levites may redeem at any time. And that was based upon the purchase price and, again, the number of years. And if a man purchases a house from the Levites, then the house that was sold in the city of his possession shall be released in Jubilee for the houses in the cities of the Levites are their possession among the children of Israel. But the field of the common land and their cities may not be sold, for it is their uh, perpetual possession, the, the, the common land by, owned by the entire tribe of Levi. That, that whole purpose was to keep Levites living amongst each of the 12 tribes. So, so the Levites just didn't have like a separate area that had been designated to them. They were supposed to be distributed amongst all 12 of the tribes and have permanent places to live for themselves and their families so that the ministry was continuously going on amongst all of the tribes of Israel. You know, right now in our nation, you know, it's two weeks ago, our president walks out of the White House and goes across to the Episcopal Church and holds up a Bible and has a photograph taken. And, you know, the woman who has been appointed the minister at that church pitches a fit in the news about the fact that the president did that, came over there, stood there, and had his picture taken while he held a Bible in his hand. Yeah, I, I guarantee you if Al Sharpton had gone over there and held a Bible in his hand and they'd taken a picture, yeah, he would have been applauded. That would have been on the cover of Time magazine. Was, you know, Al Sharpton, who was arrested with Jesse Jackson, in the 60s for inciting riot in our nation. You know, people forget, you know, leaders. Oh, the, here's a spiritual leader. A spiritual leader. You know, one, one more time. Camden, New Jersey, murder capital of the world. Right? Uh, drove through there years ago with our friend Joe D'Amico, and he tells us, we pull up to a four-way intersection. You see people standing on the street corners around us. Do not look at them because they're going to assume you're looking at them because you want to buy drugs. They will immediately come to the window of the car. You're now going to be stammering and stuttering about how you don't want to buy drugs, so they're just going to stick their gun in your face and hold you up. That's all of Camden, New Jersey. You know, the police do not go in there without being in clustered squads. Fire departments do not go in there without being protected by squads of police. EMTs don't go in there without being protected by squads. Not a single cruiser, not one cop, a squad goes in with them to protect them. It's that dangerous. Camden, New Jersey was originally designed as the housing for the African-American communities which were being employed by giant business of Jewish business owners who had huge manufacturing centers right there in and around Camden, New Jersey. They were being given the best jobs the African community, the African-American community had ever seen in America. Uh, real jobs with real retirement and, you know, real insurance packages. Now, the complaint at the time of the civil rights was legitimate, don't get me wrong. They were being paid less than the white workers who might have been employed by those same companies, and they wanted equal pay. That's a legitimate complaint. So the civil rights movement and the Black Panthers whipped them into a frenzy, start fires and rioting, and all over that district. They burn Camden, New Jersey to the ground and destroy the centers of industry and manufacturing. 
The Jewish business owners collect their insurance payments and move their businesses out of the state. Gone. Camden, New Jersey is left as a ghost town, and it's infiltrated by every single lowlife on the planet of every race. And now you can't go in there without fear for your life. You know, granted, the injustices that we see need correction, right? Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. That means you're going to have to literally examine a person's life and see, are they godly? Before you start listening to their counsel. Before you start following their leadership and following their advice. Are they godly? Donald Trump last week, nobody's really paid attention to this, reversed all of the medical mandates that came through Obamacare that said we needed to care for the LBGTQ transgender community in a different way in all of our medical facilities. You know, they show up, man, posing as a woman, and want to be treated as a woman medically, under Obamacare, the medical industry was commanded that they needed to do everything they could to accommodate that. Donald Trump had the wisdom to say this past week, hey, those poor people whom we love dearly from all over our nation, and then let's be clear, 310 million Americans, 1.25 million transgender people. Why is, I mean, that number seems grossly imbalanced. You know what I'm saying? Why are we giving all this mandate to such a small portion of our population? But anyway, if they show up, the medical community has to accommodate them for their gender expression. How are you going to treat a man who has a medical condition as a man with the treatments that a woman would need? You can't, right? There's a psychological problem in this poor person called gender dysphoria. The, the psychiatric community has known this for decades, and they've been treating people that have gender dysphoria for decades with this. So, you know, here's, here's a body dysphoria that's similar, right? Gender dysphoria. Man feels like emotionally he's a woman. <clears throat> Here's another body dysphoria. Maybe it'll make more sense for you. Young woman, 98 pounds, starving herself to death through anorexia, feels like she's fat and comes into the hospital and wants liposuction surgery performed on her body. The entire medical community says this poor woman has something wrong with her mind and they go at her treatment from the direction of we need to help her sick mind. Same things going on with a man that comes in and says, I feel like a woman. This poor individual's mind is sick and needs our love, our grace, our attention, our care, and our help. But we don't get the knife out and start butchering their body. This is where our culture is at. And we've got a president currently, or a tremendously flawed president. I'm not implying anything other than that. I mean, so messed up. I mean, he's practically as messed up as you are. You know, imagine, right? <clears throat> you laugh, right? But I mean, if you were in charge of the nation, God help us. Uh, I'm not joking. I'm serious. You know, imagine how ill-equipped you are sitting here this morning to run this nation. God has seen fit to put that man in that office who, by the way, has by presidential order from the first of entering the office had a Bible study in the White House every day. Since he took office, there's a Bible study in the White House every morning. He doesn't attend it every morning, but it's available to everyone in the White House and he has attended it regularly as he can. That's a guy I can respect that will sit down and listen to the word of God. And he says, you know what? 
Uh, the crowd has been pushed back. Let's go over to that church that was on fire last night. And he stands up, holds up a Bible, has a picture taken. The nation freaks out. This is where we're living. We need the Levites in every single town, in every single state, in every single community ministering. And what we've done is we've driven them out. Those that have lives that were dedicated and anointed by God for the service of the ministry. And we've, we've refused to tolerate them. You know, shrink their churches down to nothing, to where they cannot sustain themselves. And they leave discouraged and distraught. You know, our enemy is destroying the work constantly. You know, when talking about applying the Bible to this nation, Barack Obama said, whose interpretation of the Bible? James Dobson's or Al Sharpton's? Like, that's a legitimate question. Right? I mean, I got issues with James Dobson, but good grief. Give him the Bible and let him teach everybody. Compared to Al Sharpton, the Reverend Al Sharpton. This is where we are. The leadership of our nation. The godly leadership of our nation has been sold out. Gone. Removed from their rightful positions. Look at verse 35. If one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him. Wow, you can pretty much stop right there. Because so much of Christianity teaches that if someone falls into poverty, clearly they're in sin. Right? Turn on the televangelists on TV, and they're going to tell you that if you're a true follower of God, you're going to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous in every area of life. Most of God's followers and servants and ministers throughout history have been impoverished individuals. When I was younger, I met a Baptist minister in Rumney, New Hampshire, who told me that during the first portion of his service as a minister, his entire pay was the house that his congregation provided him with and the produce and livestock and goods they brought him in food. And that was it. Served for decades just receiving eggs and meat and produce from people's gardens, place to live, and enough to sustain himself. Told me he had one suit that he washed every night and hung up, let it dry. Dedicated to serving the Lord. And his congregation took care of him. If someone falls into poverty, poverty is not, the point I'm making, the poverty is not a curse from God. We all may suffer it from time to time. And what's the mandate? Help. Help him. Like a stranger or a sojourner. Remember that the scripture says that. A foreigner in your land or someone who's traveling through your land. Because the Lord's going to deal with slavery here in this discussion shortly. And the Lord right here is saying as far as how you deal with those who are enslaved or foreigners or passing through your land, you treat them kindly. You take good care of them. Now, don't misunderstand me, right? You know, so much politics have been involved in this discussion this morning. We're supposed to have a strong border and we're supposed to protect our land. These foreigners and strangers and sojourners that are in the land were all required to worship the Lord the same as the nation of Israel was. You want to come into the land, you want to be part of this, then you're going to have to worship the God that we worship. You have to leave your idols at the border. You're going to have to abandon your faith in order to come inside our borders. That was a mistake we made as a nation. Take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God. That's the third time that's been said now. Fear your God. The motivation needs to be the understanding that there is a God who is alive and the judgment that he will transpose upon us if we do not fear him and obey him. Fear your God, that your brother may live with you. You shall not lend him money, your money, for usury, charging interest, nor lend him 
your food at a profit. I'll give you 10 eggs, but you got to repay me a dozen. You can't do that, the Lord is saying. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. It's very easy sometimes when you're in the process of transition to have a compassionate heart and be like, yeah, I'll never act that way. <laughs> it's not until you're in the place of abundance that that really gets tested. It's when you're in the place of being well-to-do, right? When you're in want and somebody tells you, the Lord tells you, don't you ever act this way. We always act like, of course I would never do that. Obviously. It's not until we're in the place of comfort and ease that that really gets tested to see how we're going to behave. They're currently in the wilderness, as I've said twice now. They've just been released from Egypt. They're following the Lord through the desert. And God is saying to them, when you get into the land, don't you dare do this to your brethren. And their, their thought, they even say it later, we will do all that you have said to do, and they don't. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Now we'll uh, read this section. And if one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave, as a hired servant and a sojourner, he shall be with you and shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. So everything has to be calculated upon the planting and the harvesting. Then he shall depart from you, he and his children with him, and shall return to his own family. He shall return to the possession of his fathers. There are some laws regarding children born in the custody of a master that the Lord is sure to correct right here. Later he's going to talk about the slaves that they've purchased, and he's going to say that you know when someone is in that condition, the children and the wife are to remain within the household under the master if the person who is enslaved departs. So try not to be confused by my inserting that, and just understand that the Lord is saying here, amongst your brethren, if they come and they are sold to you, it needs to be the idea of employment. And you need to be good and kind to them. And when they leave, they need to have the freedom to take with them the wife that they may have acquired and the children that may have been born to them. You're not going to then keep those as some possession. You know, they have freedom because they're of your bloodline. They are of the nation of Israel. So they can take his children with him and shall return to his own family, he shall return to the possession of his fathers, the land that he was at. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him with rigor. You were beaten by the Egyptians. Don't you dare beat one of my children or, you know, rule over them with that type of cruelty as the Egyptians did over you. Paul, excuse me, the Lord tells Peter and the disciples that the position of pastor and leadership uh, that uh, Peter refers to as being the shepherd over the flock, he says uh, two things. One, that the one who's going to be the shepherd should not do it for, the, for gain, financial gain. He shouldn't be given to filthy lucre. Uh, but then he also says that they should not uh, you wield their authority over the congregation with an oppressive attitude. They, they shouldn't you know, oppress the people of our faith with that. I think I've shared recently, I had a conversation with a man years ago who was uh, helping us do some work here in this building, and uh, he was really infatuated with our church and fellowship and was even considering coming to church here, but he then broke down and told me that he couldn't because the pastor of the church that he belonged to, when he first started serving in that church, that pastor told him, literally, now that you've signed this document and committed yourself to service here, that's for the rest of your life. You can't ever go to another church and be part of that church or serve there. 
And, uh, you know, I tried to take him to the passages of the scripture to say, you know, whether you come here to this church or go to another church, that's completely unbiblical. What you're experiencing in that church as leadership is ungodly, you know, might even be able to say demonic. You, you, you need to, and just given that one mandate alone, you, you probably need to leave that church. You know, the fact that someone's trying to rule over you that way, that's cultic level of control. You know, the freedom to go where the Lord leads us is, uh, you know, part of our worship. You shall not rule over him with rigor, but you shall fear your God. There it is again. And as for your male and female slaves, whom you may have from the nations that are around you, from them you may buy male and female slaves. Moreover, you may buy the children of the strangers who dwell among you and their families who are with you, which they beget in your land, and they shall become your property. And you may take them as an inheritance for your children after you to inherit them as a possession. They shall be your permanent slaves. But regarding your brethren, the children of Israel, you shall not rule over one uh, another with rigor. So just need to be very clear that the Lord does not endorse slavery right here. Okay. Uh, there are going to be slaves in the world, is what the Lord is saying. And you are allowed to purchase those slaves to yourself and keep them. But in so doing, you need to take care of them in a way that no one else would have. Exodus chapter 22, right? Previous to Leviticus, looking at verse 21. You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. We're told uh, by the prophet Isaiah that we need to consider the rock from which we were hewn. The nation of Israel was taken out of slavery themselves. What a horrible thing for them to have been slaves, and now here are people that have been enslaved by other nations who are now being sold. If they're going to buy them, they need to be especially kind to them. They need to be especially merciful to them. He even gives opportunity for those slaves to purchase their own freedom out of their slavery later. They need to be an example to the world in creating freedom amongst those who have been enslaved by the cruelty of the world. You know, a poor example, you know, we take men and women off the streets into Calvary Residential Discipleship Program. They have to pay to come into that program. People are shocked when they find, what? How could that be? You make drug addicts pay? Well, listen, right? No skin in the game. People take advantage of that, right? If, if you have not paid... You will not stay. It's as simple as that. You know what a simple 30-day rehabilitation program of the world costs right now? The cheapest one I found last week in studying this was $32,000 for 30 days. $32,000. We're charging $5,000 for six months. Six months. And we'll let them pay however they can. Uh, come in, and then the very first thing, the first three days, we know they're going to be pretty much useless if they've just pulled the heroin needle out of their arm. right? First three days are going to be really groggy. After that, work. Work is required. Constant, continuous physical activity. Because that's going to be the thing that frees them. They're investing in their own freedom. There's always critics on the outside that read this passage, hear and watch what the church is doing, and have negative things to say. Okay, you got to look behind that and see what is the Lord's motivation. The Lord's motivation right here is, you as Israel were slaves. Don't you dare 
Treat the people who come under your care with the same rigor you had to serve under. And they need to be given the opportunity to look for their own freedom. It's a wonderful thing the Lord is actually doing. Now, if a sojourner or stranger close to you becomes rich, and one of your brethren who dwells with you becomes poor, and we'll just move through this last section, and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner close to you, or to a member of the stranger's family, so a foreigner, someone not of Israel. After he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle, or his uncle's, or his uncle's son may redeem him, or anyone who is near of kin to him and his family may redeem him, or if he is able, he may redeem himself. Thus he shall reckon with him who bought him. The price of his release shall be according to the number of years from the year that he was sold to him until the year of Jubilee. It shall be according to the time of hired servant for him. If there are still many years remaining, according to them, he shall repay at the price of his redemption from the money with which he was bought. And if there remain but a few years until the year of Jubilee, then he shall reckon with him, and according to his years he shall repay him the price of his redemption. He shall be with him as a yearly hired servant, and he shall not rule him with rigor, or shall not rule with rigor over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed in these years, then he shall be released in the year of Jubilee. He and his children with him for the children of Israel are servants to me they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt <clears throat> I am the Lord your God the thing I want you to notice in that is the Lord requires the surrounding nations to operate by Israel's rules it isn't as though oh you got uh, somebody that's a foreigner that's near you that purchased one of his, well, their laws apply to him. The Lord is saying, no, my laws <coughs> apply to my possessions. My laws apply to my people. And no one can override that. And if someone tries to override that, it's your responsibility as a nation to go and free what belongs to me. Right? Jesus talking about leaving the 99 and going and finding the one. Maybe as I'm saying this right now, a certain person's name is coming to your mind. They've been enslaved by your enemy. It's time for you to go and speak to that child of God who is enslaved to the enemy and remind them of God's laws and God's mandates regarding their freedom. They need to be set free. Yeah, okay. You got yourself caught up in this stupidity. You got yourself caught up in this addiction. You got yourself caught up in this relationship. It's time to leave it. It's time to come back to the Lord. You belong to the Lord. You made confessions of belonging to the Lord. It's now time to return. Very often, that's what's required, right? They may refuse you, but you can see right here within this that the Lord is saying that it's up to us to go and redeem the one who has been enslaved by a foreigner, to go and redeem the one back into our brotherhood. They belong to our family. So very often, when we go and talk to them, what we discover is the Lord's already been speaking to them, and they just needed somebody to come and remind them, and then they end up back in our midst. We need to take responsibility, right? That, that statement that Cain gave the Lord, what am I, my brother's keeper? Yeah, yeah, in fact you are. You know, you've taken your brother's life from him, and you are responsible for that. We are responsible for the lost sheep of the house of our God. So if the Lord has spoken to you, 
this morning, I would encourage you to reach out to those people, maybe even today. I'll leave you with this one verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Your body and your spirit belongs to God. And so doesn't the body and the spirit of your brother and sister who may have become lost along the way. Reach out to them and do all you can to free them and redeem them. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father, we are grateful for your love, grateful for your work in our lives, and we pray that you would minister to us, Lord. We so very much need your love and your touch. Fill us with your spirit this morning, that as we leave and walk out these doors, we would be performing your work in your will. Accomplish what you want to in our hearts and our minds and with our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.